welcome to Inspired Island, where every episode we sit down with someone living an inspired life here on Vashon Island in Puget Sound. From world-class artists and musicians to chefs and business owners, our little rural island has it all. I'm your host, Grace McRae, a new full-time Vashon Island resident, and thank you for joining me on this journey to discover why Vashon is such an inspired island. Hello, everyone. It's an exciting day today because we are sitting down with none other than Joseph Bogard. Welcome to Inspired Island, Joseph. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Joseph is the executive director of Save Our Wild Salmon, uh, which is a coalition of conservation organizations, recreational and commercial fishing associations, clean energy and orca advocates, and also businesses and citizens committed to protecting and restoring one of the most iconic resources here in the Northwest, the wild salmon and steelhead of the Columbia Snake River Basin. So I'm really excited to learn more about Joseph's work and how he got to where he is today. So Joseph, here on Inspired Island, we love to learn about you as an individual before we launch into your work. So I'd love to know about your backstory, like where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. Uh, so I grew up in, in Pasadena, California, okay. and I was born in Inglewood uh, in the in the early mid '60s. And from the time I ever started thinking about it, I knew that that wasn't the place that I was going to be. I ended up going to school out of uh, outside of that area, uh, and and eventually made my way to the Pacific Northwest. But as a kid, you, you know, it's a good thing my parents aren't here. Because uh, they'd have stories. <laughs> I was a little bit of a terror. I had a lot of energy. Uh, and one of the things I, you know, for, for whatever reason, liked doing most was being outside and, and running around. And, you know, I grew up in Pasadena, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty neat community. And it, it actually has, for Southern California, a lot of open spaces and wild spaces that allowed me to roam. And, and I did. And did you have a special interest in animals or fish at all? Well, fish I didn't have any exposure to until uh, I took a trip with my father uh, at, in fifth grade to Alaska. That was when uh-huh. I first got introduced to salmon. But as a as a child, yeah, I always had, we had pets and, and you know, I was always outside and, you know, had a great affinity and affection for animals. And my, you know, my parents, as parents are, sort of saw that and said, well, you need to be a veterinarian. And so that was the, the, the trajectory that they suggested for me uh, while I was growing up. And I didn't pursue that, but, but it, it made sense to them. And, and it, I think it makes sense to me, too. And what did you pursue academically? So I went to uh, UC Davis in Northern California. And, uh, you know, people asked, what are you going to study? And I said, well, you know, I, I know what I'm not going to study. I'm not going to study science. Um, that just doesn't interest me at all. And then, of course, by the second quarter, I was a zoology major, and you know, which made my parents happy because that's a, a good pre-vet uh, major as an undergrad. But it's not what I pursued. I, I just really enjoyed the sciences and and you know, zoology, of course, science of animals. And uh, and then I got about midway through, I added a, a minor in environmental studies. So I was starting to uh, become more aware and sort of active in the in the conservation movements. What brought you to the Pacific Northwest ultimately? It's a good question. I I spent a bit of time in uh, South uh, Southern Oregon teaching uh, in the early '90s, and after a couple of years of that, decided to transition out of teaching. Actually, I wanted to. I'd, I'd spent uh, a lot of time in Northern California volunteering with different conservation organizations, the California Wilderness Coalition, 
back when a fellow named Jim Eaton ran it, who founded it years and years ago, and the Pacific, uh, the Planning and Conservation League, which is a pretty well-known conservation group uh, in Sacramento. And and then I sort of cycled out of that and got into education. And, and after a couple of years, just decided that uh, I, I wanted to work my way back into the, the conservation advocacy work. And at that time, you know, we were in the throes of the ancient forest debates and, and, and battles about protecting the last ancient forest of the, of the Pacific Northwest and, and the West. And um, so I headed to Seattle. I did some work outside uh, in the woods um, for a year or so, and then eventually went back to grad school and, 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 and to, to pursue a master's in, in uh, natural resource policy. Okay. Sounds like you were very interested in environmental conservation from early on. I, I, I had that uh, orientation, yeah. Yeah. My I... nickname, I think, when in, in high school was Johnny Appleseed. That was my, <laughs> my friends gave me that name. I think it was the closest they could come to, you know, some sort of outdoorsy type that, you know, cared about recycling and not littering and that sort of thing. And how did your, you make your way to the world of salmon? So I went to, I eventually went to grad school in the Midwest and at the time knew I was going to be coming back. I'd sort of made a commitment to come back to the to Pacific Northwest and took every opportunity to choose projects that were Northwest resource-based. Okay. And so there was a particular project, um, this was in the mid-90s, um, uh, that was uh, focused on defining and analyzing the emerging salmon conservation crisis in the Columbia Basin. Mm. And so that was really when I, I you know, the, the, the fish in a conservation uh, sense sunk their teeth into me. And this is true to this day. Salmon are connectors and they connect uh, freshwater to saltwater. They connect you know, tribal people to non-tribal people. They, there's, you know, people are, are, you know, sort of inspired by them. Uh, and they also, you know, fish for them and consume them. They support economies and cultures. And you know, particularly in the Columbia Basin, it, there's two major economic activities there, right? And sort of energy production, the hydro mm -hmm. system and, and agriculture. Um, and then there's salmon. And of course, in the last uh, 60, 70, 80 years, those other industries have risen and and it's come at the expense of uh, the the healthy salmon populations, which also of course support sort of important valuable cultures in in addition to their you know contributions they make ecologically as well mm. and so you know the, a thing that that drew me into this particular issue back then and and keeps me there now is the the opportunity. If we can figure a way out to protect and maintain healthy wild salmon and steelhead populations in the Columbia Basin, then we've taken a huge step towards sort of real sustainability in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, it's it's not uh, an either or sort of clean energy or hydro you know, energy or, or salmon or other things. It's just about how do we sort of strike a balance that is going to... Um, protect healthy salmon populations, uh, healthy clean energy system, and, and of course, healthy you know, agriculture and other communities. And could you talk a little bit about what the salmon landscape <laughs> was, if you will, say like 100 years ago before the major dams were built and people seriously got in the way? 
So, of course, people have been here for thousands and mm-hmm. thousands of years, Native Americans um, from you know, all over the Pacific Northwest. And for uh, all of that time that pre-European people lived here, th- this region you know, was really defined by salmon. They, it just incredibly rich, diverse populations. Uh, you had adults, a big adult salmon that were coming back throughout the year. It might be bigger pulses at different times of the year, but but they were basically always fishing the river. Uh, it's incredibly you know nutritious resource, uh, delicious resource, <laughs> and uh, and and prolific. And so there was a huge course culture built around that. But you know, let's say in the Columbia Basin, on an average year, you got ten million fish coming back, and you know some of those might be ten pounders, but but. Back then, you got fish that were, you know, up to 100 pounds. And the the June hogs that used to, uh, that's what they were called, that used to uh, head into the the mouth of the Columbia River in the springtime were, those are the fish that, you know, they they were 60, 70, 80, 100 pounds. And they are the ones that headed up into BC, into Canada, uh, all the way up the, the Columbia River. And they were one of the early populations that was extirpated when Grand Coulee went in. Okay. Uh, and of course, all this, this whole dam system was built without uh, any consideration of, uh, you know, the fish themselves, um, the, the, the people that relied on in their cultures. And of course, that whole political landscape in the Northwest has changed, I think, much for the better. Um, you know, tribal communities have a, a tremendous amount of, of, of political clout and, and legal, you know, sort of jurisdiction. Uh, on these issues because of the way the, the the legal land and policy landscape has changed over the last 30 or 40 years. But but back then, you know, the Elwha dams went in. No one asked the lower Clallam tribe if, you know, what they thought or if, the, if, if they shared those thoughts, they were, of course, ignored. And so, you know, it was incredible productivity. And, and you know, to be fair, uh, I think it's it's not too hard to imagine the perspective of Certainly, European settlers coming out here, especially when, you know, I mean, the Northwest, in some sense, was a dark corner of the country. I mean, there was very little electricity, and there was this tremendous uh, river system that had great potential. And, of course, it seemed like salmon were just infinite and inexhaustible. Mm. And so I can appreciate a different perspective back then, but, but, uh, but it's different today. Of course, we know a whole lot more. Definitely. So I'm from the East Coast. We don't have salmon that I'm aware of in central Massachusetts. So I wasn't around the salmon culture, but here is just so pervasive. For people who don't know why salmon need these rivers, could you explain a little bit, just like a 30-second overview of the life cycle of a salmon? Sure. For, first, I will point out that Europe once had healthy salmon populations that are now, really? you know, if any are left, it's just very, very small numbers. And then, of course, in the East Coast, you had robust salmon populations. Atlantic salmon filled all those rivers uh, and through population and different kinds of development and about a bunch of dam building, you know, those populations basically have disappeared. Now they're mm-hmm. hanging on in a few instances. And, you know, in, in recent years, there's been a number of river restorations through dam removal that have helped create uh, or uh, uh, reopen habitat that was uh, uh, historically available to the Atlantic salmon. And, and so I, I think there are some glimmers of hope in that regard. Here in the Northwest, I think we, we still are in that uh, that point where we haven't quite 
figured out if what we're going to do or how we're going to proceed. And, the, and I would say certainly that the future of salmon in the region is is uncertain. And we've got some critical decisions to make, you know, sort of now and in the near future and over time to if we're going to sort of protect this uh, sort of uniquely defining species of the of the Pacific Northwest. Um, to get to your question, uh, salmon, you know, are unique, right? They they use freshwater habitat and saltwater habitat. So the adults uh, grow large in the ocean, and then at some point they return. Different species come on different cycles, uh, but they return as adults uh, back to their natal spawning grounds where they were where they were hatched uh, several Crazy. years before, and uh, they. Uh, you know, lay down the, the next generation. Um, so they build nests in the river. Uh, they move rocks around uh, um, and then they, um, you know, they lay the eggs and then the, the males come in and, and fertilize them. And, and the, the females will hold on as long as they can protecting those, those, those nests, those reds. And, uh, but eventually in the case of salmon, they will, they will die after spawning uh, and having, laid the groundwork for the next generation. What a couple things to point out is they produce, you know, a female will produce thousands of eggs. So there's a tremendous, you know, productivity and, um, uh, and these young fish then head out to the ocean, uh, and, you know, serve and, and feed and, um, uh, uh, provide nutrients to the ecosystems all along the way in the ocean. Of course, they, uh, they grow large. They're they're hunted by various uh, animals, orca uh, in particular. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But a lot of other animals, they provide food, uh, and they're in such great numbers. You only need a couple, three, four percent of those initial young fish going out to the ocean to come back as adults to maintain the population. Mm. So there are all these. Uh, the salmon might think differently about it, but they deliver all these benefits along the way. And then when they come back as adults. Um, they deliver what scientists like to call marine-derived nutrients, which basically each fish is a, a, f a fertilizer sac that's bringing all this nutrition out of the nitrogen and phosphorus and, you know, and into these systems. And, and, you know, think about, let's say, 10 million fish coming into the Columbia Basin every year. Let's say on average they're 20 pounds of fish. I won't try to do the math right now, but <laughs> one can. And then just think about that tide of fish that comes in year in, year out for, you know, not just hundreds of thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years. And they've just delivered over time this incredible amount of, of nutrients, which has really, you know, it, I think it's the foundation of our ancient forests. Um, mm. uh, over time, they, you know, the, these systems in the Northwest, these river systems are pretty uh, uh, you know, nutrients are, are, are scarce. And these fish would deliver this huge load of fertilizer, basically, that not only, of course, you know, helped grow trees, but, 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 but supported all kinds of really rich, uh, eco, you know, wildlife populations, you know, from the smallest critters up to grizzly bears and wolves. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, so getting to Save Our Wild Salmon, when was that organization started, and were you part of it from the very beginning? Uh, I wasn't. It started in, in 1991, and it it it, uh, it it its origins are tied to um, the plight of 
of Columbia Basin salmon. So the first salmon population in the Columbia Basin to be listed under the Endangered Species Act was Snake River sockeye. Okay. Uh, these are fish that um, uh, m- m- you know move up the Columbia River as adults and then into the Snake River and then into central Idaho up almost as high as 7,000 feet. So these are like Olympic salmon. These are fish that are incredible climbers. They're the highest climbers on the planet as far as salmon go. Uh, That was the beginning of a series of listings under the Endangered Species Act. Today, there's 13 populations. Uh, All four of the Snake River Basin are are currently listed as threatened or endangered. And then there's nine other populations scattered throughout the basin uh, as well that are, um, you know, facing extinction if we don't do things differently and, and soon. Um, so save our wild salmon, um, you know, this wasn't the beginning of conservation efforts around around salmon recovery and protection efforts. That really started, you know, earlier, at least in the 70s, perhaps even earlier. And one of the, I think, d- you know, dynamics uh, before S- Save Our Wild Salmon or SOS formed was you had these different salmon constituencies. So you had recreational fishermen and you had conservationists and you had commercial fishermen. And uh, and then, of course, you have tribal nations and their their power it, over the last 40 years has really grown in their influence on, on policy. But, but that at, at that time, and again, this is before my time, many of those constituencies were, you know, fighting with each other. They weren't working together. And there was a recognition, I think, that the listing of Snake River sockeye, that they may go extinct, sort of shook people. Mm. And if and a small number of folks got together and said, you know, we've got to we've got to do things differently and we've got to start working together on 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 the places that we agree or we're gonna find ourselves fighting over the last fish. And so SOS, you know, I think did um set up a new paradigm in conservation in the Pacific Northwest um that got constituencies that have been fighting together but had common interests mm. focused on those common interests and working together and our work has really been uh concentrated in the columbia basin it, it was once the most productive salmon landscape on the planet and um and it still is it has um, some productivity in it um and yet it's it's also and so delivers those benefits for example you know Colombian and Snake River fish are a critical component of the diet of orcas, which desperately need more food. Um, uh, so, you know, their population, salmon population in the Columbia Basin have, have declined by, you know, sort of on average 95, 96%, just a few percent from historic returns. And yet there is this tremendous potential, and, and it's especially true in the, in the Snake River Basin. Um, for reasons we can we can talk about for really significant restoration opportunities that can you know rebuild populations that are teetering on the edge of extinction and uh, rebuild the benefits that they deliver throughout their life cycle. Yeah, and on that note, have there been in all the years that you've been working on these issues, have there been any local success stories? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, there's you know when one looks across the the time in the Northwest around salmon conservation. I think there's been, uh, you know, we've had successes and failures. This year in particular is has been a hard one because the salmon populations, not just in the Columbia Basin, but but elsewhere, 
you know, are are at really low levels. In the Columbia Basin, they're at some of the lowest on record. Um, but I think that the, um, uh, uh, you know, I think some of the biggest successes uh, are river restoration projects that are restoring habitat and recognizing that, that, that if we want these fish to continue to live here with us, that we've got to take a, you know, sort of more respectful and more humble approach to how we uh, impact the landscape. And, you know, um, one of the uh, things that we can do is give rivers back to the fish. Yeah. And and it's been a, you know, it's been a hard, long conversation, uh, not just regionally, but nationally about doing this. But, you know, we're, we're, I think more and more people are both finding we've got dams that we've built. There's 75,000 dams in the United States today. Uh, a lot of them are getting old. It's quite possible a few of them were mistakes and shouldn't have been built in the first place. There's, there's, you know, in, in, in over time, we're finding that, you know, a growing number of dams, their benefits are exceeded by, or, you know, the sort of the costs associated with these dams are far are increasingly, you know, larger than their benefits. And, you know, that's when it becomes a much easier conversation about uh, thinking about taking them out. And of course, you know, one of the real great signature success stories in the Pacific Northwest, I think that most listeners are going to be uh, familiar with is restoring the, the, the Elwha River on the Olympic Peninsula. Headwaters are in Olympic National Park. It's fantastic habitat. Um, they were built illegally over 100 years ago, never mm. got permits, um, never got legal permission to do so, never consulted the, the lower Clallam people. And, um, uh, and after a long uh, campaign that started in the mid seventies, um, initiated at first by, I think the lower cloud people, but then joined with conservation groups who initially were received with, uh, you know, sort of expressions of dismay that we were talking about taking dams out. It was a pretty radical notion then. And, you know, in some quarters it still remains that way, but the conversation has really shifted. And, and I think one of the things is you know there's 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 increasingly the Elwha is a good example. The economic case for removal becomes undeniable. We just can't afford to continue to put money at things that that aren't sort of paying their way, especially in the context of the great harms that they they're delivering. Um, and then the other piece is that you know I think people are looking for opportunities to solve problems and help, especially when it comes to uh, Mother Nature and mm. and you know and I think that that the um, the Elwha is just an excellent example. I, I was up there with a friend a couple weekends ago. Uh, we hiked into uh, up along the river between the, t- the two former dam sites, and we saw you know several dozen uh, adult king king salmon that were in the river. They were holding in the river. There was a, a number of females that had set up nests uh, and were guarding them. And you know, I think that um, that what the report I've heard is that nine thousand adult king salmon are expected back in that river system this year, which is a huge jump from the, the previous years. And, you know, I think it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a very inspiring example. Uh, and I think people are looking for those and there's a lot of support over time for, I think, and, and it will increase over time to you know, restore rivers and, and, and the fish that inhabit them. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how nature 
I guess like human bodies can kind of heal itself if you give it space. And it, it's, uh, you know, that's the thing that's sort of uh, in almost every instance I can think of in river restorations. And, you know, you've got the Sandy River down in Portland, outside of Portland. You've got the White Salmon um, River where Condit Dam was removed recently uh, in southwest Washington state. I mean, there's there's been, you know, in the northwest, dozens of, of dams that have been removed. Um, and there's more to come. Uh, I think there was a decision recently to restore the Nooksack River and, and take out a, an obstacle there up in northwest Washington state. But, you know, one of the things that's, that's sort of interesting is, you know, scientists will make these predictions about, you know, how long it's going to take for the river to restore itself or how long it's going to take, or, or you know, for salmon to restore. And in almost all cases, once, as you said, the you sort of give the river back to itself, um, you know, things fall in place pretty quickly. The mm. returns of salmon come back much. I mean, I think the returns of salmon to the Elwha are coming back in, in exceeding scientists' expectations. That was true on the Sandy River in, in Portland. And, 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 and again, in that instance, um, you know, I think they loosened up a dam and, and then sort of turned it over to the river. And what they thought was going to take years to move all this sediment out was moved out in months. <laughs> you know, the river's power is sort of relentless and, and it, it kind of knows what it wants if you, if you as you said, give it that space. Yeah, that's that's a little glimmer of hope. But uh... if if people haven't gone out to visit the Elwha, I would, you know, it's just a couple hours from here. It's on the other side of Port Angeles. And uh, I think it's it's well worth uh, wandering around there, especially right now with 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 the fall Chinook coming back. It's 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 super inspirational. Okay, I'm taking note. And so I've heard a lot in the news about the Snake River dams. Is that a big focus of the Save Our Wild Salmon Coalition? Uh, it is. Uh, it that has been a, a campaign that uh, Save Our Wild Salmon. Uh, initiated 20 years ago, mm. uh, the, the board, after great deliberation in 1998, made a uh, decision uh, to move beyond some of the operational tweaks that we had been advocating for before, changing flows, increasing spills, uh, in order to create some space for the fish. Uh, and and, and the, the, what drove that decision and it was a difficult decision because it was it was controversial then, and in some quarters is today was um, science. Mm. And you know, throughout the '90s, I think scientists just increasingly, through their research, came to the conclusion that if we're going to have fish in the Columbia Basin, uh, we we've got to take some dams out. We 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 sort of overdid uh, what some consider a good thing. And uh, and it's pushed, you know, these populations across the whole basin uh, to the edge. And it, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, with a number of the dams that, that were constructed in the Columbia Basin on the on the Columbia and the Snake, uh, they didn't have any passage at all. And so they they just when they went up, Grand Coulee is a good example, um, you know, they just cut off, you know, thousands and thousands of miles of, of historic salmon habitat forever, or at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and, and on the snake, there are some dams upstream, uh, that are, that were built, uh, they were, they were required to have passage for salmon and, and that was never implemented. And, and so those fish are gone today, but the, the lower snake has been a campaign for 20 years. And, and if it makes sense, I'll, I can sort of explain a couple of reasons about why it's been such a focus. Uh, one is that these were some of the last dams that were built 
in the Colum major dams built in the Columbia Basin. And as a result, they were, you know, sort of the lower value dams. Um, uh, they, they chose the more higher value dam sites to do as a higher priority and earlier. Um, and the original reason for the construction of these dams, which occurred in the 60s and 70s on the Lower Snake, was to provide uh, barge transportation for uh, agricultural products and other products up from the, the main stem Columbia to Lewiston, Idaho. And it was a, you know, 40-year campaign. And early on uh, in the 40s and 50s, the, the Corps said they didn't want to build them because they didn't pencil out. And, you know, over time, uh, you know, the argument shifted and the sort of cost-benefit analysis sort of figured out a way to make it pencil out. Mm. Um, and the dams were built uh, for transportation purposes and for um, energy production. And um, uh, those uh, services that have been provided by the dam uh, have been in decline for years. They're replaceable with alternatives. And, um, you know, and so salmon fishing advocates, tribal communities, all, all sorts of folks that care about the future of these fish have really been focused on this particular river system uh, because, because of the low value dams that are replaceable and because that all four remaining populations of salmon steelhead in the Snake River are threatened with extinction. Uh, and finally, there is, uh, and this is an important piece, this is probably the most, um, the greatest river salmon restoration proposal anywhere on the West Coast. Wow. Um, and, and that's because um, there's huge amounts of habitat up, upstream in central Idaho. 5,500 miles of rivers and streams that currently, that once uh, supported, you know, huge numbers of fish. The Snake River Basin, central Idaho, historically was was highly productive because of the nature of its sort of bedrock and and that sort of thing. And and uh, but these fish would also uh, have access again into uh, northeast Oregon, the Grand Ronde River, and uh, historic Nez Perce country, and then also in some rivers in in, in southeast uh, Washington. And so. Uh, a lot of this land is is high high elevation. It's protected as, as federal lands as wilderness. It's in great shape. You know, some people have described it as sort of five star hotels, but it doesn't have any guests. Uh, <laughs> and the problem is downstream impacts. And yeah. so the hydro system can kill as many as eighty percent of the young fish heading out to the ocean before they ever get there. And so right off the bat, they're starting with an extreme disadvantage. And then they live out through the ocean, return as adults. And, you know, in, in 25 or 30 years of trying, we've spent $17 billion. We haven't restored a single population on the Snake or elsewhere in the Columbia Basin. Um, so I think, you know, increasingly, and this is where I have some optimism, I think people have finally come to realize that, you know, scratching their head and saying, wait, wait a minute, this, this is costing a huge amount of money. Uh, we're not getting anything for it or it's not that not, you know there's been some 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 benefits out of that program uh over time that involve you know reconnecting some habitats and and protecting and, and restoring you know some of those the tributary river systems and estuary but we haven't restored these fish yeah. and they're still teetering on the on the edge of extinction and so you know maybe we ought to think about ways that could spend less money but but deliver more uh, in terms of river and, and what these fish need 
Yeah. And two follow-up questions for you is one, I've heard people say, oh, but there's fish ladders at these dams. It doesn't seem like they're super effective. Is that right? So the, there are fish ladders, but the, the problems associated with this, these four dams and reservoirs is, you know, the, the federal agencies like to talk about how they have 96%, you know, survival as the fish, young fish pass each dam. Uh, what that metric is, is for one dam, and, and these fish have to pass four. So you can, you can multiply 0.96 eight times to find out that that impact, cumulative impact is quite significant. But it's also only taking into account the survival of fish at the very top of the dam to the very bottom of the same dam. In other words, it, it, that statistic totally ignores the uh, harm that's caused by the reservoirs, the long journey. Um, you know, these fish used to, when they, before the dams were in place, they would, as young fish in the springtime, jump into the current face upstream and get pushed all the way out to the ocean in about a week or 10 days. Didn't take any energy. The water was cold, so they didn't, they didn't burn up much, you know, their metabolism was low. And they were out to the ocean with all these, you know, energy reserves that they were, they were born with. Hmm. Um, today, they, you know, in, if you're a fish in central Idaho, you head out into the current and you get pushed down into a reservoir. And then you have to figure out, well, geez, how do I, you know, there's no current I, and, and the waters are warm. And, 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 and because you've got these big stagnant pools, it's encouraged the proliferation of fish that, uh, that like st still waters mm. and eat these young fish as they, as they come through the hydrant, as they come through the reservoir. So the bottom line is by the time the, the number of fish that survive get to the ocean, they've been stressed out going through all these dams. They've been, uh, they've had to expend a huge amount of energy to get there. Just the, the process of using their tail to work their way through a currentless reservoir. So they, they, they arrive at a, at a great disadvantage uh, in that regard. And of course, you know, there's only 20% of, of those that, that started originally at the, top, at the beginning of the journey. And one of the consequences, another consequence of the extended journey that used to be a week that's now, you know, four, four weeks, five weeks, is that if that journey gets extended too long, they will, they will lose their ability to transform from a freshwater fish to a saltwater fish. Really? And yeah. that's a super complex process. And, and there's a window of opportunity for that. They've evolved with over time. And if they wait too long, they'll lose it. They'll hit the salt water and they die. And so uh, it's that series of, of, of impacts. There's, you know, warmer waters, there's predator fish, there's the impacts of the dams themselves uh, that are responsible for, you know, the high, high mortality. So, you know, just put frankly, the, the hydro system is by far the single largest source of human caused mortality, which is why advocates and scientists have been focused on we've got to address some of these impacts or it doesn't matter what else we do. Right. You could reduce or eliminate harvest. You could uh, you could invest a lot of, of money in tributaries, uh, you know, uh, habitat. But it won't matter if we're not dealing with the mortality caused by those reservoirs and those dams. Yeah. And restoring the Lower Snake River will, you know, reduce those harms and and put fish, you know, on on much a much firmer footing. They'll 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 hit a current in the Lower Snake that takes them all the way to the Columbia. They'll still have to deal with those reservoirs on the Lower Columbia. 
but it will be uh, uh, you know significantly less. And um, and and what all the science shows is that um, you know there'll be a toll that those dams and reservoirs exact, but it's not it's not sort of threshold that that won't allow them to 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 to, to recover. Okay. And last question about the Snake River dams is if both the economics and science are behind the removal or the breaching of these dams, why hasn't it been done yet? Like what's holding what's holding the process up right now? So just to confirm, the science is very strong um, that shows that, you know, for various reasons, the that we will not protect these fish from extinction as long as they stay in place. That's that's number one. And then, you know, on the economics, you're also right there too. Uh, a recent economic analysis was done uh, here in the Northwest, looking at the costs and benefits of of the dams uh, in and out, and you know, it found that um, there was a, a, a like a nine billion dollar economic benefit um, to restoring that river and its fish, include that includes the costs of replacing the services they provide. So. You know, the bargey would need to go on rail or truck, and um, there's a little bit of irrigation water that's drawn out of one of the lowest, most reservoir. You know, you'd have to make some investments to, to make sure those communities aren't left behind. And, yep. and I think salmon advocates are, um, you know, for years we've been, you know, extending that olive branch and, and wanting to have that kind of conversation with other key stakeholders in the basin to figure out how we might move forward to restore the river. Uh, but also make sure that other other communities' needs are met, and and frankly, there's some real opportunities to, that are associated with restoring this river and its fish for you know I think communities in Southeast Washington, but also um, you know far beyond. Uh, you know, I'm optimistic. Um, I think there's some leadership that's beginning to emerge in Washington State and in the Pacific Northwest that recognizes that the status quo can't stand. Uh, we're spending too much money. We're getting too little for it. Our salmon are at risk. Our orca are at risk. Fishing communities are suffering. And so, you know, uh, in the spring, a congressman out of Idaho, Mike Simpson, opened up a conversation with a keynote speech uh, in Boise at a conference uh, that, you know, he sort of served up. We, I'm asking the tough questions. And some people don't like that. And if people don't like that, then I know that we ought to be asking the tough questions because if these dams are so valuable and irreplaceable, that should be an easy argument to make. Um, and I think people are nervous to have scrutiny on that system. And uh, and and it's it's that conversation has been opened up. And I think salmon advocates are uh, and fishing advocates are particularly grateful for Mr. Simpson's leadership in that regard. Yeah. Um, it has opened up, I think, a conversation in the Northwest that um, in, in a way that hasn't occurred before, where I think the region is really learning a lot about that stretch of river, why it's so important to salmon and to orca, and how we might be able to do things differently. Governor Inslee has uh, uh, started a, a Lower Snake River stakeholder process uh, with a series of interviews, learning different stakeholders' views and sense of opportunity around Lower Snake River dam removal. That's underway right now. That came out of the Governor's Orca Task Force um, and then was funded, fully funded by the legislature, something uh, the salmon advocates, fishing advocates, or orca advocates are very appreciative of. 
Governor Little uh, in Idaho has, has begun a salmon recovery working group bringing together different constituencies. So there's some conversations that are underway right now that, that are new. Uh, and I think, you know, I think it's important to realize, despite the science and the economics, there's a important sort of human dimension to this. And we've got to figure out how we work together to solve some problems. And the problems aren't just salmon and orca, but of course it's, you know, the health of fishing communities and the health of Bonneville Power Administration. They're facing some real financial challenges today. And and I think these things connect. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to figure out how as a region, Northwest policymakers, Senator Murray, Senator Cantwell, Governor Inslee, and others work with those key stakeholders and uh, citizens to find a way forward that works for everyone. And, and you know, what we've been doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's high cost and, and there's very low return. And, you know, we've got to find a new way forward that, uh, and, we, and there's urgency because, you know, there's 73 orcas remain today. You know, there was an announcement this summer of three more deaths. So we don't have a lot of time, to, uh, and, and we need to act quickly, or we're going to lose some of these signature species and defining qualities of the Northwest that you know is, is the reason a lot of us live here. Yeah, definitely. And just to drive that point home is the southern resident orca in the Pacific Northwest. They've been living on salmon for, I think, like hundreds of thousands of years, Absolutely. and so it's like something like 80% of their diet I was reading. So they just evolutionarily have not been able to change because just the drastic decline in salmon, right? It's been what in the last 50 years has been this massive drop and they're searching for food and they're very specialized hunters and wild salmon. So, yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people come to this, some of these issues because definitely the orca is very iconic on lots of signs and <laughs> we've got our Metro card here in the Seattle area is the orca card. So yeah, hopefully we make some changes Really quickly, and on, on that note, if anybody's listening and wants to get involved as a citizen, uh, what are ways that you recommend people sort of voice their concern about these issues? Sure. I mean, one thing uh, I would direct people to our website, wildsalmon.org, uh, and there's there's lots of information there, including you know ways to get a hold of me and colleagues there uh, to get more involved. Uh, one one thing I you know encourage everyone to do on a regular basis is, is, you know, contact your elected officials, um, you know, particularly at the federal level and the governor, uh, they need to hear that this is a high priority. There's greater urgency and that people of Washington state or Idaho or, or Oregon are really, are calling on them to, to step up and solve these problems. What we've been doing for the last you know, 25, 30 years has been deferring to the federal agencies. And, you know, they have, you know, spent a huge sum of money. They've produced five illegal inadequate plans. They're in the process of uh, under court order doing it again. And, you know, it's just clear to me, especially when you think about the the kinds of community transitions that are needed and and the the importance of, uh, you know, helping Bonneville address its real financial challenges that that it's going to take political leadership and, and policymakers to assemble a package and a plan working with people of the Northwest uh, to really solve this in a way that, that protects our salmon and our orca from extinction. So engaging elected officials and policymakers is critical. And then learning more and sharing your information with others, encouraging their activities. I mean, there's all 
sorts of different ways people you know, through their individual actions can can help you know reduce their footprint on the on the northwest and its waterways and, and forests and so forth but and those are important uh, but but I think it, particularly with this issue it's it's going to take uh, you know endless pressure endlessly applied on policymakers if, if we're going to move forward and make progress on this issue and it's both necessity but there's also I think great opportunity the, the types of benefits that, that that salmon provide to communities on western Washington as well as eastern Washington. There's a lot of steelhead fishermen and salmon fishermen in eastern Washington that would like nothing more than to have a whole lot more opportunity to spend time in the river fishing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a lot of people in eastern Washington that care deeply about orca. And, you know, these aren't issues that divide us. These are issues that unify us. And, and we need to keep that in mind uh, and w- as we work together and solve problems. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that. I could talk to you about these issues all day, but I know you've got to head off and um, continue your important work. But before we get into the round of quickfire questions, I'd love to hear just the story of how you got to Vashon. I never got to that earlier. <laughs> uh, so how did I get to Vashon? I... Uh, it, my wife, okay. uh, she, she brought me here before, before we were married, Amy, uh, who works at the school, she's, she works in the garden. Her, I think her nickname at school is Miss Bogarden. Oh, that's um, cute. And, uh, she had, um, just before we started dating, uh, purchased a piece of property out here in the Dilworth neighborhood, uh, an old for- farm from a, a gentleman named Tok Sutka who's now gone. And, uh, she moved out here with another couple. They bought it together. That was how I got my start out here. We actually met out here five years earlier at a weekend gathering for an organization we used to work for. Um, so it was sort of a funny coincidence that we ended up uh, living out here, (laughs) Uh, but we've been out here since the mid nineties. Very cool. And there are salmon sometimes on Vashon, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the, the and of course, there's a bunch of folks working on the island, doing really good work, protecting and restoring habitat. Um, the, you know, the Vashon Land Trust is, is, is a really good example. Um, Sound Action does a lot of work, not just on the island, uh, to protects resources on the island, but, but across the, 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 the Salish Sea. Um, yeah, and this is the time of year when those, those fish should be coming back. Fingers crossed. Cool. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Joseph. Um, it's been really amazing. Um, and as, you, as you've as you heard, we end the, every show with a fun little lightning round of questions just to get to know you better. Is that... I, I didn't know that was coming, but I'll do oh, my best. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, just tell us what comes top of mind. Uh-oh. So the first question is, the Seattle area is known for good beverages, whether that's coffee, tea, beer, wine. Do you have a favorite beverage here on Vashon Island? Oh, I think my favorite beverage would probably be a a, a, a pint at the community pub in the mm. north part of town, Cliff's Operation. Nice. That's a good one. And if you're not at home or work, where can people most often find you on the island? Like, do you have any favorite haunts? Oh, uh, it's probably uh, running at Island Center Forest or Shingle Mill Trails. Beautiful. And do you have any pet peeves about island living? Well, you know, the the, the ferry is a <laughs> is, is a necessary, uh, uh, not quite an evil, but it's an inconvenience. Beyond that, you know, I, I actually really love this place, the, the community, the the different people that are here, and and uh, 
and I'm particularly I'm not this isn't a pet peeve at all this is the opposite I'm I'm always impressed by the 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 sort of the quality of musical talent that never seems to uh, end there's just there's a tremendous amount of, of such talented musicians here it's it's great it's a great place to live for that yeah and also on that note do you have a favorite Vashon Island tradition um uh, it might be a solstice party in the particularly in the in the dark part of the year where we gather together with friends and and uh celebrate the return of the light <laughs> yeah i like that too and lastly where can people find you or learn more about you and your work uh so my email address is joseph at wildsalmon.org and our our website of course is wildsalmon.org and um, you know, I encourage people to take a look there and, and don't hesitate to reach out if you want to you know, have questions or you want to get more involved. Very nice. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's, great. it's been great talking to you. And thank you all for listening. Again, this is Inspired Island on Voice of Vashon, KVSH 101.9 FMLP. Until next time, stay inspired.